We communicate with our investors. We want to make sure our investors have that level of relationship with us. We have that level of transparency with them, but we also want to make sure we can preempt a lot of communication so they don't have to be going after us to ask a lot of questions. Hey guys, David Robinson here. Welcome to the Lead Sponsor Podcast. Very excited about our episode today. I've got a guest that uh, I've been following for quite some time now, his journey into the space, and he's really taken the multifamily syndication world by storm and has built a phenomenal business that has done an incredible amount of business over the last handful of years. And so I'm extremely excited to have Dan Hanford with me. Dan, welcome to the show. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Dave, for having me. Looking forward to sharing with your audience here. So Dan and his wife, Danae, along with their four children, three girls and a boy and a standard poodle reside and work in Columbia, South Carolina. Dan is one of the managing partners over at PassiveInvesting.com, which is a national private equity real estate investment firm based out of the Carolinas. And uh, he has led the company to acquire just shy of 4,000 units and maybe more than that at this point. Um, yes, because is. Dan filled this out a while. Where are you at now from a unit count perspective? I, all I know is we're a little more than 4,000 at this point. Okay. So I don't know the okay. exact number. And so that would put you, I'm assuming then, over a uh, billion dollar in portfolio value. Is, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So this is what I love. And, and I love, uh, you You don't know this, but we recently just changed the podcast focus from the apartment investing journey to the lead sponsor. And moving forward, our whole focus is on really getting high quality, top tier sponsors, syndication sponsors that are in the space. And so you're you're the perfect type of guest for our focus moving forward. And so I'm really excited to get into this conversation with you today. But if we can, let's start off, you know, most anyone who's been out there in the podcast world, as far as real estate investing is concerned, may be familiar with your story. But for those that aren't, take a minute and just tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, sure. So um, I'm actually a chiropractor by trade. So some people don't realize that or don't know that. Um, had somebody here recently, one of our investors that was uh, in my office recently, and they saw my diploma from Life University out of Atlanta. And they're like, yo, you're a chiropractor? And I was like, yeah. So I started out as, as, a, as a chiropractor and started my own practice. One of the things I found out early on in practice is that um, I was kind of stuck and I couldn't grow past where I was. And so I wanted to be able to expand past that. And being able to expand past that meant, you know, bringing on other people to be able to help me where to be able to, you know, take off some of the responsibilities. Because at that point in time, I was the only sole practitioner in the clinic. And so whenever I want to go on vacation, I still had to pay the staff, still had to pay the overhead. So there's a lot of extra things that I had to continue to pay for if I wanted to go on vacation for a week, right, with my family. And so I uh, started to diversify and bring on some additional practitioners to help with me, help me, and then started to integrate into medicine. So we started to hire on some medical medical doctors, nurse practitioners to work with us. 
um, ended up growing from one clinic to four clinics and actually ended up cutting out the chiropractic services and the clinics altogether because the medical side was doing so well. And we wanted to be able to reach more people in our community for the treatment with the treatments that we provided because not a lot of providers do it. And so we cut it out completely so we could build a referral network with outside chiropractors because chiropractors don't normally refer to other chiropractors because they're afraid you're gonna, they're going to steal their patient. And so we, we, we actually removed it from the clinic focused solely on the medical procedures. And we now have a group of still, we still have those four medical clinics that are you know, cash flowing very nicely today. And uh, one of the things that I found is that I had kind of maximized where I wanted to be in those clinics with those four locations. So I took what we were doing there and uh, we were paying a lot of money in taxes. So we wanted to be able to reduce that taxable liability. So started doing some investing in real estate on my own, started to do some passive investments inside of syndications myself, hired a mentor, started a co-GP with a couple of groups myself first, and then started to do our own deals. And that's also around that same time as where uh, Danny Randazzo and Brandon Abbott, our two other managing partners at PassiveInvesting.com, we came together, formed the group and the partnership, which is still today in that same kind of uh, three three partners, if you will. We each kind of all th- all three of us have our own separate lanes and responsibilities that we're responsible for within the group, and uh, and then have like you, like you mentioned in the intro, I've grown PassiveInvesting.com from really nothing to you know, growing to, you know, we raising just last year, um, almost $200 million from just private retail investors. And our average investments uh, from our investors is right at $127,000. Yeah, incredible. So here's the big question. Our listeners uh, come to the show to get some tips, strategies, tactics as it relates to growing their own syndication business. I've interviewed at this point, you know, over 200, you know, investors or sponsors. Not everybody grow. And and just to give some perspective to our listeners, when did you form PassiveInvesting.com? It may not have been named PassiveInvesting.com, but when did you sort of align with your partners? Yeah, so I'll kind of give you a little bit of a of a, of a growth trajectory as well. Yeah, so we started in 2018 together. Um, 2018, we re- actually were able to raise $4 million, which was probably the hardest $4 million we've ever raised. Uh, raised $4 million to get the company started and, and you know, close a few deals. And then uh, in 2019, raised $32 million. 2020, we did $61 million. And then, of course, last year, 2021, we did $196 million. And then this year so far, our, you know, into, into Q1, we're already about $107, $108 million that we've raised. Mm. Yeah, incredible. Okay, so the big question here, and this is going to be a high-level question, but I'm interested in just getting your your you know knee-jerk gut reaction thoughts to this. What sets someone like you apart from the many other would-be sponsors that have great vision, focus, and they want to grow something but aren't able to achieve that level of success? I mean, it's incredible what you guys have done in such a short period of time. What sets you apart? And this is your permission to just totally brag on yourself and your team. But honestly, what sets you guys apart from everybody else that's trying to do this type of stuff at a high level? You know, in the very beginning, you know, we didn't really know for sure what it was that set us apart. We just knew that we were doing something right. And, you know, over the over time, one of the things that we try to do with our investors is make sure that they feel more like uh, part of us and more of a more, we try to create relationships with them instead of just making them feel like numbers. 
And we're really good at doing that. And so one of the things that we always do is we always throughout the year, we host various investor dinners where we get our investors together all in the same room across the country. We'll go to different cities and talk to them. And we like to try to get half the room. And when I say our investors, like in a bunch of room, a bunch of our investors together, it's usually about 12, right? So we're not trying to like fill a room full of like, you know, 150, 100, 200 people. It's really like getting a small kind of, you know, you know dinner type group together so we can really get to know each other. And so it's usually about 12 people. And you try to get like half the room of people who have never invested with us and, and half the room together that have invested with us. And for those that have invested with us, we have them go around and introduce themselves and introduce kind of how and explain how they originally heard about us and then why they decided to originally to initially invest with us. And then for those that have invested with us multiple times, why did they continue to invest multiple times? Because we have about a 71 to 72% repeat investor rate in every deal that we put together. And so that's a really, really high repeat investor number, which is which means you're doing something right, right? And so uh, in that in those dinners, the number one thing and the theme that came across the entire uh, uh, you know table was our communication. So if I was to say, was there what is the one that sets us apart? We communicate with our investors. And there's a lot of you know syndicators that'll raise money from investors and they'll do one or two deals here and there. And a lot of times they don't do any past a couple of deals and their communication just goes to pot because I guess they don't need to communicate with their investors because they're not worried about bringing them on to the next deal. But I, I, I kind of like those types of syndicator groups because not that I want to invest with them, but I like them because I call them donor syndicators. So they have investors that they donate to me because they don't know how to handle them properly. They hand them over to us and we take really good care of them. And that was the theme around the table uh, at these dinner events is that these investors are able to be able to, to actually have access to the partners. We give them our direct cell phone numbers, our direct emails. They know exactly where our addresses are so they can call us, email us, show up at our office. And I've had all three of those happen before, right? <laughs> and, and we're fine with that, but we want to make sure our investors have that level of relationship with us. They have that connection with us. We have that level of transparency with them, but we also want to make sure we can preempt a lot of communication so they don't have to be going after us to ask a lot of questions. And we have right now just a little over 1,800 active investors in the projects that we have put together. And we rarely get a bunch of questions from our investors around the assets because we make sure that on a monthly basis, we're updating them about the performance of the asset, whether it be good or bad, and, and making sure that if we're, if we're, we're going to be doing something different, we, we educate them. We also have a printed physical newsletter that every single one of our investors receives in the mail every month that they can kind of hear from each one of the manager partners and other people on our team to kind of hear about how we think and how we're doing things. Maybe if we're going to move in one direction versus another and, 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 and market market conditions, all of those types of things we try to communicate with our investors. And so if I was to say there's one thing and one kind of secret sauce that we do is not that hard. It's communication but it's so often often missed when it comes to syndications. Yeah. So uh, staying in that same vein of communication, growing, you know, to a billion dollars in assets under management and beyond, is this uh, and, and and being able to provide that access to the founders and the managing partners of the company, will that have to evolve in the future? If you guys continue to grow, or as the access is concerned, yeah. 
I, I would probably say no at this point because, again, you know, our investors want to have those lifelines, but they also know that we have people that we've hired on that are team members that can help them without having to reach out to us. So nobody, nobody, none of our investors reaches out to me and says, "Hey, can you help me update my ACH information? Hey, I need to get access to my portal. Hey, I need. I wanted to ask you a question about this deal or that deal. I mean, it's." They know we have our investor relations team that's to help and support them. We have our investor services team. And so we have teams built out. So we rarely get those types of questions or from those investors, but we do occasionally get messages or text messages here and there from them. But I don't really feel like they're very, you know, nuisancey, if you will. So mm-hmm. I don't see yeah. any reason why at this point why we would stop unless we started to get to, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand or maybe, you know, 10 or 20,000 investors. And we're just, we can't handle the volume of people calling us. But even right now with 1,800 investors, I might get one text message a month and maybe three or four emails a month from investors asking, you know, my direct feedback on something. Yeah, makes sense. So I want to back up just a little bit. I want to go back to the beginning of the formation of your company. You started out by co-GPing on a couple deals. And just to give us some context, like, I mean, what did that look like for you? How, how much time, how many deals before you decided, you know what, I'm going all in, being a lead sponsor and bringing on some partners? There were two different groups that we partnered with. Uh, we did one deal with one group and two deals with another group. And each deal, we only did about 500,000 uh, of a raise for each one of them. And I remember our very first one we did, I ended up putting up 200,000 of the 300,000. So uh, it was definitely a challenging time in the very beginning, especially when we're, because it was really about educating our own base of like what we were doing. And so they were confused. It's like, hey, I thought you were running these medical clinics and now you're doing this. And like, it was just, it was just, it was just a bit of a disconnect, but being able to leverage the, credibility of those other sponsors helped us be able to get to where we are today and kind of catapult us to where we are. And how important was the formation of the team early on? And you and I have had a chance to meet. I've been able to come out to your office and meet with you and Brandon. I haven't met Danny yet, but the story about how you guys came together is interesting. And I think might be helpful to other sponsors that are in that space where maybe they've got a couple deals under their belt as a co-GP and they're really looking to formalize their business and move forward. Uh, what was that time like and how did you guys come together as a group? So if you want to meet Danny, he's in Charleston. So the only way you're going to do that is fly down to Charleston. That's just the way he is. He comes from a business consulting background and traveled all the time. And so the only time he travels is for personal stuff. So yes, you, you will eventually meet him. But if you come to the if, the, if you come to the Charlotte event that we're doing in June, of course, you will likely meet him because he'll be there. But anyway, so I digress to back to your question. So when we first got together, Brandon was actually the very first person. So uh, it was it was myself doing everything in the very beginning. And then I actually took a flight uh, to New York City with my wife and his wife and we and another couple from church. And we ended up hitting it off really well. We have a fairly large church. And so I, our family sits on the piano side and their family sat on the organ side. And so we didn't really get to you know cross paths too often. We knew of each other, but that, that time and that in the airplane really allowed us to be able to have some interactions around what he was, what his gifts were and, and skill sets were of being able to, uh, his background is building high-end custom homes and, and, uh, and, and being able to uh, uh, have the ability to kind of network with people. He's, he's, he's great with, he's a great people person. 
And so after that flight up to New York City for one day, we flew back that same evening. And uh, like, about, like a month later, he emails me or calls me back. And he's like, hey, I want to join you. I want to do something with you. And I'm like, well, this business is new. We don't have any money coming into it. So if you want to be a partner, sure. You know, um, and so at that point in time, you know, we, we, we formed a partnership and we were 50-50 at that point. And then about maybe another month later, uh, Danny came up, came, came in line. And I knew of Danny because him and I both have a, a mutual mentor and uh, he's a down in Charleston. We're in Columbia. So only about an hour and a half away. And he reached out to me one day and said, Hey, would you be interested in me doing the finance side of things and you doing the investor side of things? And, you know, let's, let's, let's form a, you know, form a company together. And I was like, well, as long as Brandon can come along as I've already offered him it. And he said, yes, absolutely. I was like, done. So yeah, thanks for giving us uh, some background on the team and, and everything that you've done up to this point. A few final questions for you as we start to wind down here. The first is, what's the biggest challenge that you're facing right now in your business that we could all learn from? Uh, well, right now, the biggest challenge that we're facing is whether or not we want to shift and, and change some of our focus from just working with retail investors to possibly working with some institutional investors. Mm. Uh, most people you know, that get into this space think it's really cool to work with institutional and they try to do that first. And the problem is, is most institutional investors don't work with you unless you have a track record and you have multiple full cycle deals under your belt, right? So it's kind of chicken before the egg, right? And so right now we have the track record, we have the, the bandwidth and we have the, the, the full cycle deals. And so private equity now is coming after us and wanting to place capital with our group. So we're considering opening up a institutional division or arm to allow us to be able to accept institutional capital, which has its own kind of like, you know, nuances to it because it's, they have more strings attached to that money and the, the splits aren't as good for us as the sponsor. But for us, it's, if it can allow us to go from a billion a year to 3 billion or 4 billion in one year, then obviously it can allow us to grow a lot faster. So we're considering that right now. It's, it's a challenge because it's, we, we've never crossed that chasm yet. And we're in that process right now of deciding whether or not we actually want to do that or not. And then there's also probably three to four other asset classes that we're considering adding as well um, and, and into our portfolio. And nothing that's going to happen this year, but you know, things that you know, we want to do things strategically. We don't want to do too many things all at the same time. But uh, you know, one of the questions we do get from our investors quite a bit, not a quite a bit, but we've had had a few investors ask it lately is is I've put you know seven seven figures plus in your deals now, and now you're. I feel like you're in multiple asset classes, and are you going to be spreading yourself too thin, right, and growing too fast? And the answer to the question is: is in my medical clinics, I learned a very hard lesson in growing fast, and it was because it was when I grew from one clinic to two clinics, I took the focus off of the first clinic and moved my entire core team and moved them into that second clinic. And guess what happened to the first clinic? It suffered. It suffered tremendously. And so I had learned a hard lesson there. Thankfully, it was all my own money that I, that I you know, messed up with there. Um, but I learned from that particular scenario that if I want to pivot and change and move into something else, I need to make sure I have a team that can take on either the original uh, piece or having somebody that can take on the new piece, right? And so when we add on additional uh, you know, business units, if you will, for car wash and hotels and uh, self-storage. And we want to make sure we have a team that can handle that piece of it. 
Now we don't take our core focus and our core you know, team on multifamily and take them and shift them into self-storage and shift them into, into, into a car wash at hotels. We want to have a separate team for each one of the business units so that we don't change and shift our focus. And that's one of the reasons why our team has grown so fast over the last really 12 to 18 months. You know, this time last year, I think we might have only had like maybe 13, 14 people. And now we're over 30 people. We got 34, mm-hmm. 35 people that are working for us full time. And uh, and so that's one of the things that we have a challenge that's on our plate is making sure that we continue to, to strategically add different business units, but also do it in a way that's going to make sure that we can continue to protect our investors and their, and their, and their investment. And going back to the, in, um, you know, taking on, you know, uh, institutional equity, if you are able to attract an amount of equity that really enables you to grow at, a, at an, an extremely fast pace, do you foresee any challenges with deal flow? Meaning, is your challenge more the equity at this point or deal flow? If you were to sort of say, this is my this is my bigger challenge of the two, what is it right now in the market today? I would say both, but I would also say that the deal flow could be greater if we had a private equity source that could bring more capital to the table. So there's larger deals that we were looking at, 150, 175 million that we can't take down on our own right now, right? Unless we have a large 1031 group coming in or something like that, it's just it's just hard for us to do. The largest deal we've done on our own to date is 109 million, which is still a, a really big deal. And we were able to get it closed up with no issues, actually closed it you know, last month, but actually in February of this year. But it's, it's still one of those things where we would go after more of those larger deals if we knew that we had a consistent, relationship built with a group that can bring in some some larger checks. So yes, it's deal flow. Yes, it's capital. It's always going to be both. Ever since we got into this space, it's always been a been a kind of tug and war on making sure you have enough deal flow and make sure you have enough investors and you have to constantly be balancing both of them in this kind of a game. Yeah, makes sense. So moving forward, would you say it's inevitable that you go the you know private equity route? I mean, for you to grow at the pace that you want to grow and, and hit the, you know, the goals that you guys have set for your team, do you, do you think it's necessary for you to take on private equity? For the current goals, no, I don't think it's necessary um, for, for us to get to the, the, the 5 billion in the next five years. But even, even with the, the 1 billion this year, I don't think it's, it's outside of what we currently have in our network. But I do think that if we want to grow faster than that, we're going to have to take on some some private equity. And when I talk about private equity, I'm primarily talking about preferred equity providers, right? So I'm not trying to find somebody that's just going to take down an entire deal for us. It's going to be a a larger slice that, you know, we'll buy a $150 million deal and that might be a, you know, $60 million raise. They're going to take down 30. We'll take down 30 with our own investors. Mm. And so there's kind of a a balance there as well from, you know, the, the, the private equity kind of preferred equity slice um, that's what we're looking at right now. So there may be some other scenarios that happen down the road, but right now it's really trying to look at some of these groups that can bring some larger checks from a preferred equity perspective. Yeah, love it. Well, the last question I've got for you is, as you move forward into the future, what are the biggest risks that you see that you're trying to mitigate at this point as you continue to grow? And granted, 
you've got a very large business that you're looking to take to a whole nother level. So your what you see as a potential risk to your business may be different than the guy that's taken down his third or fourth or fifth deal. But from your perspective, where you're at today, what are the biggest risks you see for your business that you're trying to mitigate? Well, for, for, for us in the very beginning, we were always trying to plan for some form of economic recession. Right. And so if there is some form of economic recession, are we are, are each one of our assets that we're in poised to withstand uh, one of those economic recessions? Because if you look past the last hundred years, most economic recessions have not lasted more than about 15 to 18 months. So as long as you can set your asset up for success to be able to withstand something for 15 to 18 months, you should do perfectly fine on the other end of the recession. Right. And so one of the things that we do is as we I guess, technically overraise money on our deals to make sure we have plenty in operating reserves and, 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 and capital reserves so that we don't ever have to worry about a capital call for our investors to keep a deal going, right? Mm. And so, yes, it does reduce returns for investors when you bring on more investors to raise more money for a deal. And yes, it causes us to have to raise more money for a deal. So it makes it more challenging for us. But at the end of the day, when we did an analysis on it, it only reduces the return for investors by about one percentage point. So for most of our investors, they're perfectly happy to give up one percentage point to not have to worry about future capital calls and be able to hold onto a property and create a more, an even more recession resistant type of an asset that they're investing in by having a plenty of, of capital reserves. So that to me would be, I would say, is this probably the biggest thing that we're always constantly preparing for is not fearing the recession, but preparing for it. Like right now, if we had a recession, our assets would be perfectly fine. I'm not worried about any of our assets, right? I think we'll be, we'll, 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 we will withstand any type of economic pressures that come our way. Now, on the other end of it, it'll be even better because we'll be able to sell in, 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 in an upswing of an economy, uh, which will be great for us as, as well as our investors. Yeah. Love it. Great explanation. Well, look, Dan, it's been an honor to be able to spend a few minutes with you today. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to share some insights on the path to $5 billion in asset under management. And incredible what you guys have done. You guys give back to the uh, multifamily investing community in a big way through Multifamily Investor Nation. Uh, outside of Multifamily Investor Nation, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you and your team and learn more about what you have going on in the future? Yeah, sure. So there's two ways you can reach me uh, and kind of f figure out what we're doing. So first is you can just go to our link, my LinkedIn profile, which is just linkwithdan.com. If you just go to linkwithdan.com, just go straight over to my LinkedIn profile and you can connect with me there. Um, you can also go to our website. If you haven't heard about it yet, passiveinvesting.com. And uh, on that website there on the top right-hand corner, there's a blue button that says, join the Passive Investor Club. You can jump on there. If you have any questions for us, feel free to you know ask any questions that you like and uh, glad to be able to help out any way we can. We'll have links to that contact info in the show notes. So if you're listening right now and you want to connect with one of the premier syndication groups in the country, go down, click on one of those links and connect up with Dan and his team. Dan, again, an, an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Awesome. Thank you, David. Hey, before you go, if you and I haven't connected yet, please head on over to canovocapital.com. You can join our investor network or download our free Passive Investor's Guide to Multifamily Syndications. Either way, I'd love to connect with you personally. Also, I just want to thank you for listening to the show and providing feedback and reviews. 
If you haven't already, please, please, please take a second and leave us a rating and written review. This helps us to be found by new listeners and helps us attract great guests in the future. Thanks again for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great day.